0: All right. You know what I usually try to do? And I messed this up. I should have started recording earlier. I always try to find something from our conversation. They'll put it in the beginning. When you said you, had a, you, you have a potty mouth, that would have been a funny thing to add. But anyway, too late now. Now it's just going to sound forced. All right, cool. So uh, let's get started. What's up, UX fam? How's your mom and them? Welcome to another episode of Beyond UX Design. I'm Jeremy. If you're new here, welcome to the show. I'm super stoked to have you. If you haven't done it already, consider liking or subscribing to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you are a regular here and you feel like you're getting something out of the show, I would really appreciate you leaving a five-star review, maybe even a little sentence or two. Apple loves that stuff, and so do I. That'll help me out way more than you can imagine, and to help keep the show independent and ad-free, you can become a patron for as little as $3 a month. And if you do that, you'll get some sweet perks. For all your support. And of course, if you think this show is worth sharing, then for the love of God, share it. And for more information on how you can help more people find out about the show, make sure to check out beyonduxdesign.com support. All right. Got that out of the way. All right. Today, I am super excited to have one of my new buddies, Amanda Howard, on the show. Amanda is a mid-level UX designer in the enterprise space, place very near and dear to my heart. And as a career changer, she came to UX with 13 years of experience in education which is pretty awesome, and I think there's probably a lot of crossover there. I want to talk about that a little bit. She's got that experience in education, deep work in behavior, sociology, psychology, and cultural anthropology, which amazing assets to bring to the UX field. She's autistic. She's late diagnosed. She also has ADHD, something I'm very familiar with, and often shares her experience navigating the neurotypical world on LinkedIn. So if you haven't, please follow Amanda on LinkedIn. Amanda, I'm super stoked to have you. Welcome to Beyond UX Design. Thanks for being here.
1: Super excited to be here, Jeremy.
0: Well, I am super stoked because I've been following you for a while on LinkedIn. And it's also funny too, because you're also in Cincinnati, I which am. randomly, I didn't even realize that we were engaging on LinkedIn, I guess. And I was like, wait, she's like right down the road. So anyway, it's really awesome to have you on. One of the things that I really wanted to bring you on to talk about was you post quite a bit about neurotypical neurodivergence and, and how they interact quite often and for me personally, I'm, I'm really passionate about diversity and inclusion and making sure we've got diversity of background, diversity of thought. But I wanted to bring you on the show to talk about that and see how we can apply some of those concepts to our everyday work and bring it to the field, get, get that diversity of background, diversity of thought, and make our tools even better.
1: Absolutely. I think it's so important because we're not a homogenous group um, in the world. We interact with people who are very different, whether we know it or not. And that's mm-hmm. the key. A lot of times we don't know about neurodivergence. It's, it's something that's very hidden um, and assumed that people are one way or another based on how they look, which is, it's not the case. It's not a physical manifestation. So it's really important to think about diversity in this way.
0: Well, let me talk a little bit about that word neurodiverse, neurotypical, because this is something I don't think I have really heard it. Maybe, I don't know, a year ago, maybe it's the first time I think I actually heard that word. Um, those two words, at least together. Can you explain a little bit about what neurodivergence is and maybe how that, because re- I've heard it in context of people talking about autism and things like that. So is that similar? Is it different? Or is it overlap? It's like a Venn diagram. Can you talk a little bit about neurodivergence and, and, and what that means?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I went ahead and pulled up my personal definition of neurodiversity before we started. So for me, it's it's the differences and variations in brain functions and behavioral traits that are normal variations of humans instead of deficits. So basically, everyone is different. We have different strengths, we have different learning styles, we have different ways that we prefer to interact with the world. Um, neurodiversity is another subset of that. So it's actually a biochemical difference in your brain and the way it's wired and the way it functions. Um, This can include um, differences in expression of thought, or it could be autism spectrum. It could be ADHD, dyspraxia, dyslexia, dyscalculia, a a bunch of different um, ways that it can manifest. And oftentimes, um, as in my case, it's a comorbidity. I have two versions of neurodivergence, uh, being ADHD and autistic. So those influence each other and it makes it a really interesting blend and flavor of of the way my brain functions.
0: So that's, it's really interesting because, you know, it's, it's funny, a, a guy was diagnosed with ADHD or I, I guess it was ADD technically when I was a kid. I don't know that they didn't call it, a, <laughs> yeah, they didn't call it ADHD back then, but um, I was diagnosed with ADD and I've never thought of myself as neurodivergent before. And so it's kind of interesting for you to say that. Because that's something I never really applied to myself. But I, I imagine, I, I don't know, I never looked this up, but I imagine there's a large subset of the population that is diagnosed with ADHD, right? I, have, you, I mean, have you looked at that before? I'm not really Male,
1: sure. yes, mm-hmm. not females. Like really? the fact that I was diagnosed when I was in middle school was a big deal. Um, mm. I didn't get the assistance that I needed until I was in my 30s. Wow. So um, that was a, a navigation of things that I didn't understand. And I didn't get diagnosed with autism until about two years ago. So I was like 34. Really? Wow. but there is a huge section of people because it's an evolutionary difference. It's a change in the way that your brain functions. It can be influenced sometimes by the way that your body changes and develops and, and the hormones change in your body throughout your lifetime. So it can get better or worse based on, on that. But overall, if you think about the fact that you've probably noticed differences in the way that you think in the way that you operate throughout the world, throughout your whole life, even if you haven't considered yourself neurodiverse or neurodivergent, you've definitely adjusted to working in a style that makes sense for you. I've seen it. I've seen it in the way that you post. I've seen it in the way that you um, think about things and and your thoughtfulness and your comments and responses. So if you really kind of examine the way that you view the world, the lens that you view the world with, you kind of see those come up. I don't remember the exact statistics. I used to know them by heart, like how many people currently... (laughs) are diagnosed. We'll add it in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I know that like, you know, autism prevalence right now, the projected target is about 3% in males and like half a percent in females. Really? Okay. And obviously that's not including, you know, gender differences there. We're just talking about biology there, but that's probably not true. It's not representative because females tend to present very differently than males. Um, it's not a hard and fast rule like anything, but we're severely underdiagnosed. We don't fit DSM-5, which hasn't been updated since 2013. So we're kind of like, hey, here we are. What are we doing to help help women who are autistic, who might function a little bit differently or present differently? Or even uh, you know anyone that's autistic that might be on the other end of the spectrum. We tend to be labeled as what a five-year-old boy would present with classically with the diagnostic criteria that were developed in the 60s. So it's just really trying to get away from this idea of a medical diagnosis, which is still important, and going more toward a social model that looks at how your brain functions Mm -hmm. and how you can work better with your brain to be more successful, to be more authentic, to mask less, and also to navigate a world that's not built for you.
0: Now, this is something I I wanted to dive into a little bit because I think this is really interesting and it makes me think back to when I was a kid. But this idea that neurodivergence... As a disorder that needs to be fixed, it's bad, right? You you have you have ADD. You need pills. You you have autism. We need to figure out how to make you function in the real world versus you know how however you'd like to function. And it makes me go back and think about when I was a kid when I was diagnosed with ADD. The reason why I ended up going and and going to speak to the doctor because back in the day I I went to Catholic school and we had behavior grades, and so you would have A through F on a on a for for behavior. And I would get Bs, you know, I didn't really get As, but Bs, maybe Cs every once in a while for all my, my classes. But for behavior, I was getting Ds, Cs and Ds. And what I would do is I would constantly tap, just tap on the, the desk or my feet or, you know, I would talk and I wouldn't shut up and everything else. And so they sent me to the doctor. I got diagnosed. And my uncle at the time was actually a counselor uh, in a, at another school somewhere else. And he told my parents, you know, they wanted to put me on Ritalin at the time. And he said, do not give this kid drugs. You know, like, and at the time this was eight, this God, what year was that? I was in second, third grade. I'm, I was born in 82, early, late eighties, maybe early nineties. I can't
1: remember when that early was. Early nineties, maybe?
0: Yeah. he's like, we don't know what, what the side effects are, the long-term effects of giving your kid drugs so early. What is it going to do to his
1: brain? And there was only one dose. There weren't a bunch of doses.
0: Oh really? I didn't even know that.
1: There was just one, one or two dosage. So that was another issue
0: as well. So what he said was, you know, instead of giving him a bunch of drugs, trying to fix him, give him something to do. And so that's when I started taking drum lessons and I started playing drums, you know, back in second or third grade or fourth grade. I don't remember exactly what it was. But anyway, I started playing drums to like, you know, keep the move, you know. And so I never was I I was never given drugs. And over time, I just learned to live with it, which, you know, and and I think about that disorder. It's like, oh, just pill, you know, dope them up. And I remember so specific, there was another kid, Andrew, who had AD, ADD and he, they would give him pills and he would just be like, like just a zombie, a zombie, you know? And like, I just mm-hmm. remember seeing him at like jumping her off the walls and then give him the thing. He's just sitting there just staring straight. You know, it's like, I, I I, wonder, I was, I was a tiny kid and I just remember feeling so bad for this kid. You know, it's like they're, his parents are trying to fix him. And I, I was think, thinking back, like my parents didn't try to fix me they tried to give me some outlet, you know, and I've, to this day, I've never taken any kind of drugs from ADD. I just sort of, you know, fidget toys all the time. My wife is constantly yelling at me to stop tapping or, you know, I'm constantly tapping my feet. Normally when I'm on meetings, I have fidget toys or something I'm playing with and I'm not using them today. Yeah, you got one too. I'm not using them mm-hmm. today because I'm, I'm recording. I don't want, I don't want the, the bleed through the audio, but anyway, that, that idea of neurodiversity as a disorder, can you speak to that a little bit? Cause I'm interested on your thoughts there.
1: You know, so I think that we've been sold this dichotomy either, or it has to be either you are on meds or you're off meds, either you are pro medicine, pro medical intervention or completely natural. And I think that's a falsehood Mm. that has been really pushed by two separate groups um, of people throughout time. And, you know, I, I kind of have a similar story growing up. Like I was diagnosed in middle school. I was missed until then. I don't know how I was caught in middle school as a girl because I, you know, I didn't fit all the criteria exactly, but also inattentive type and so, or impulsive type rather. So I, I didn't get any help or services from anyone except for a couple teachers who made some adjustments for me because my brother was severe, severe, severe ADHD. Mm -hmm. And my parents refused to put him on Ritalin because again, the same problem, the single dosage, making kids into zombies. And so for me, that was just like, it didn't exist at the time. Um, and, you know, my parents said the best they could at the time. We've had a lot of conversations about this since then um, and really kind of talked about what this means, especially because my kids naturally have fallen genetically in the same path as I have. So we've really helped them kind of own this and, and embrace it throughout their whole lives. However, <laughs> I also have biochemical depression and anxiety. So it's the kind that's not from trauma. It's from my brain chemistry. And it's just the way that I'm wired. And, and so for years and years that actually kept my ADHD kind of in a in a balance. Oh wow. Of okay. the draining of the energy helped slow my brain down a little oh, bit. Oh wow. So it wasn't I still had to have lots of coping mechanisms, but somehow I managed to get through college and graduate school and becoming a successful professional. But you know, it was really hard. And then when I finally, finally put my my, my mental health first and sought the help that I needed for that and got myself stable and really kind of got over the fact that you know, medicine is just going to be part of my life for the rest of my life. And that's okay. Like, I, it's not a stigma for me. For me, if it's what I need to be a, a functional, normal human being, then awesome. Like, that, that's what I need to get from day to day. And there's no stigma with that. If you don't need medicine, that's great. But I was terrified to go on Adderall. My, I mean, when I, when I got my depression leveled out and really started to be able to manage that, my ADHD shot through the roof. Wow. Like, my brain could not stop. So you know how when you like walk to the fridge and you forget what you were looking for? (laughs) All the time. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So I would literally look in a different direction and forget what I was looking for because my brain was just going so fast. Yeah. And you know, my brain does think differently. I I don't think linearly, like in a line, I think radially, like spokes of a wheel. So when you tell me something and I'm processing an idea, I'm going off in 15 directions and I'm going down all the different paths of where they could go at the same time. and. To have that happen at such a speed that I couldn't control my thoughts and I couldn't function and I couldn't reach for something and remember what I was grabbing or you know write something down because my brain was firing that fast, I had to make that scary leap into Adderall for me. Now, I have been on that for seven years now. I've you know gone through different dosages to, depending on what I needed, and I take just enough to make myself feel like I'm... Somewhat in control of myself, not completely, because there are some good things about being ADHD. There's the creativity. There's, like I said, the thinking radially and being able to go down all of these paths. But I I do need to have some modicum of control over, like, my processing speed.
0: That's so funny you mentioned that because, like, for me, this is interesting because I've gotten so much feedback over my course, and I'm, I'm trying very hard to fix this. But the biggest feedback that I get constantly from peers. And supervisors and you know my reviews at the end of the year is you go so fast nobody can keep up. You talk a lot. (laughs) You don't give people the space to talk and things like that. And it's never like I'm interjecting or or trying to speak over them, but I just have this idea I want to get out of my head because if I don't, I'm going to forget it, right? And so you
1: feel like you're going to explode.
0: Yeah, and I just I interject. Like
1: you feel like you're literally going to.
0: Yep. And -hmm. I just talk over people and I interrupt people. My wife constantly she's like, "Let me finish." You know, it's funny because you mentioned like how the speed at which you think and. I don't know if this is normal or or if other people think this way, but when I'm talking with my wife, for instance, you know, it's very different from a professional environment. Professional environment, I've learned to sort of count to three or four before I start to say something to make sure someone's done. But my wife, you know, she'll start to say something, and I already—it's like I know what she's thinking, I know what she's (laughs) going to say, and I'll just start replying to her. And she's like, "I haven't even finished my question. Would you stop?" You know, but I'm
1: like, "My husband hates
0: me for the same thing." (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, "I know what you're going to say. You don't have to finish your sentence." You know, (laughs) and it drives her crazy. And it's no no disrespect, but it's like. I just want to I want to get it out because if I, I I try to keep it in I'm I'm not you know like right now I've got a notebook and I I start writing stuff down cuz I don't want to interrupt you obviously but I write stuff down to make sure I don't forget it to say it again later but that's really interesting that radial kind of thought the other thing the, the positives of that though I get a lot of feedback at the end of the year we we have this cool thing at work where you have to send a a survey out to your peers like you pick 10 people mm-hmm. and they fill out like you know considers consider doing something differently or continue doing something well. And, and a lot of the times I'll get feedback that, you know, I'm, I'm thinking a million in a million different directions and I'm quick on my feet and blah, blah, blah. And I never associated that with ADD before. I always thought that was just sort of me, but it's interesting that you're saying that it makes me kind of feel a little less bad about about my diagnosis, but It's kind of interesting. I don't know. Anyway.
1: Well, no, you're exactly right. And you feel like somebody, you feel like you're pulling on a horse's reins. Like, I don't know if you've ever ridden a horse before, but you literally feel like you're pulling yourself back. And I will find myself physically like, moving during meetings, like yes. holding my, holding my fidget toy, yeah. flipping my, I use a silicone wedding band as a fidget. That's a little bit less oh, uh, like that. obvious. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I flip it back and forth and I'll be like flipping it really hard or like writing down notes and just trying so hard not to interrupt people a pen. because we do <laughs> have this crazy. forecasting ability because we analyze these patterns. Mm-hmm. It's not that we're just impulsive, mm-hmm. but our brain is moving so quickly through the synapses that it's, analyzing the patterns and predicting where it's going to go next. And so people are really disturbed by that. (laughs) Not just the interruption, but also the ability to accurately forecast 90% of the time what someone is going to say or how something is going to end up. It freaks people out and they don't like it. It takes away their power. And so you have to really work with your peers and with, with your boss to kind of understand where you're coming from and that it's not you're trying to usurp power and it's not that you're trying to insert yourself or question someone but it's just that you're trying to help your brain function. Now, we do need to be considerate of others too. Sure. <laughs> That's the hard part and I get that I'm the same exact way, but
0: Now, I do have a whole like section that I I, I want to talk about that communication style so don't write it down if you need to. Don't forget about it. <laughs> uh because I want to talk about that, but but anyway, th- I think what we're we're talking about here and this is really interesting is that it's not a disorder that needs to be fixed. It's just a different way to think. It's a different way to interact. And I think it's really important for us to kind of take that into account that not everybody is like us. Not everybody thinks like that. You know, how can you present yourself in in this professional environment so that not to, not to conform to anyone's ideals of what, how you should act, but just to make sure you're not making other people feel uncomfortable. I think that's the big thing.
1: You know, I think... First of all, I the disorder to be fixed thing. Can I just talk about puzzle pieces for a second? Go for it. <laughs> As an autist, even though I'm late diagnosed, it just pisses me off when I see the the specific foundation's puzzle piece motif everywhere. I was, okay, my license yeah. plates and things because I am not missing a piece of my fucking puzzle. Right. Like you do not need <laughs> to solve me. Right. I am okay. Yeah. I do need understanding, I need support, I need care. I need you to try to come from my point of view, but you don't need to fix me. We do not need to develop eugenics to weed the autism out of people. It's not a disorder in that way. It is a disability. I can't function the way that I function in a neurotypical world. I do have to adjust myself and I need other people to adjust for me. But that that just drives me insane. Like it hurts my feelings when I drive by cars with the puzzle piece because I'm like, you're not helping. You're part of the problem
0: sort of a white savior sort of thing coming in. We're going to save and yeah, right, exactly.
1: Exactly. But looking at, you know, into how to function, I think the onus is put on neurotypical people to change ourselves and that's called masking. Mm. And it's exhausting. I was thinking about this a lot before we started today about how I could make a, a good representation of this for all of the listeners, whether you're neurodivergent or not. And the spoon theory is what's typically used. How many spoons do you have? You run out of spoons. But I was thinking about a video game. Okay. So imagine a video game that you have limited HP every day until you rest. And that HP cannot be replenished. And when you get to a certain point, you get overwhelmed and your character sits down and just like loses it or like, you know, melts and goes back to their resting place and comes back. I'm thinking of Stardew Valley at 2 a.m. <laughs> you fall asleep and then you get in trouble, right? Yep. You have to pay the fine. So that's kind of what it's like to be neurodivergent. You know, everyone has a limited amount of HP. But for us, certain things take more HP than it does for normal people. Just existing in a space oftentimes takes more HP, right? And so that drains us more, you know, sensory challenges. When I was in the classroom, I didn't understand why I had such big emotions all the time. And I didn't let the students see that, but I would constantly, you know, cry in my classroom or come home and like be angry or be short with my kids because I didn't understand the sensory overwhelm that I was facing every single day. I didn't get that about my brain. I didn't get that I was automatically just walking into a building and being surrounded by people and being under blue lights, being, you know, the noise levels where I couldn't handle them and not being able to use the restroom when I needed to use no, the restroom. I never thought about that. Like, I know, yeah. oh my gosh. And I was like right next to the office. <laughs> I would go to the bathroom between every single period. Oh, God. Like, and it was still, it was hard. It was hard to function in that environment, even though I loved what I did. Because I was so overwhelmed and it made my emotions seem really, really high. It made it hard for me to function analytically, creatively, and to give back to my community in that way because I was constantly, just my HP was being drained. It's like going into um, you know, a part of a video game where there's a toxic gas or you're standing on lava and you're draining no mm-hmm. matter what you're doing. Yeah. So that's kind of the thought there. I do think there are things that we can do to help neurotypical people and neurodivergent people that are different than us understand where we're coming from. I communicate very clearly that I have neurodivergence and what my needs are. However, that's not necessarily always an option for everyone. They don't have the psychological safety. I can tell you, I have personally been in very, very traumatic situations with some of my teammates or bosses, not not as much in UX, more more in teaching. That have wrecked me. Wow! Because someone refuses to to listen to to my needs and what I have to get in order to be successful. Um, so, advocating for yourself, if you're able to, is important. Yeah. But I also think that opening up the space and giving everyone the opportunity, whether you're neurodivergent or neurotypical, to be different, to express yourself in different ways, to all talk about all of your communication styles, to talk about all of your needs. I think that's the key to making it work without putting somebody in that unsafe position of revealing themselves
0: well that leads right into what I want to talk about next which is this idea of diversity and inclusion i mean it's almost become a it's almost become like a buzzword in the last 2 years which i think is unfortunate but i you know tons of studies have been done that diverse teams with diverse background diverse thought right diverse thought is really the key there they become the most high performing and productive teams and from, yep. you know, I don't know if it's Google that did that research or somebody else did that research, but, you know, that idea of psychological safety that you talked about is also really important for this because it, it allows the diversity to come together to perform as best as they possibly can. So I want to talk a little bit about that, that idea of, you know, the, the, how, how do we create that diversity on the team? How do we look for it? Maybe how do we get that diversity of thought? Do you have any, any, any insight there?
1: Yeah, the very first thing I would say is if you're thinking of adding diversity in your team just for the sake of diversity, don't. You're going to harm someone, whether that is cultural and ethnic and racial diversity, you know, or if it's, you know, neurodivergence or disability or, you know, anything. If you're going to add diversity for diversity's sake, don't until you've done the work to make sure that you're going to provide a safe space where someone can be successful, Um, and that starts with the team that you have now, because they, they estimate that 15% of the world's population has some sort of disability, whether it's visible or invisible. So 15%, think about the hugeness, the vastness of that one and a half out of every 10 people. If you're on a team of 10, there's a good chance that one to two people on your team have some sort of disability, whether you know about it or not. So Really just kind of making that space for everyone on the teams that you have now um, to make it psychologically safe, to make it welcoming, to, to change the way that you communicate as a team. Do that first. Then invite diversity on your team. And I hate to say delay diversifying your teams, but you don't want to bring someone into a situation where ultimately they're going to feel unsafe. They're not going to contribute differently because they feel afraid to do so. And then they're going to leave. And then you're back at square one again.
0: Maybe, I don't know if this is like, because I've been working in software for so long, I don't know if other teams outside, like if law firms or doctor's offices do this kind of thing, but I've, I've noticed an intentional push from mm-hmm. the thought leaders and, you know, the people writing that to create this psychologically safe environment in, in a software team. And I don't know, yeah. you, you mentioned this, that you didn't feel this in when you were working in education. And I'm curious, have you noticed that like software is just different? Is UX different? Is software, are software teams different than everybody else or something? Or is this something that's happening like more broadly in the professional world?
1: You know, I I can't speak for other professional environments because education and software are two very different bubbles from everything else and from each other. But I will say that I have had one ridiculously poor, traumatic, horrible experience in UX um, on a software team. But for the most part, I think the companies that I've worked with have been walking the walk and talking the talk and living their values. So I think that makes the huge difference. When I started my role that I'm at right now with Thrive, I, that's something that I looked for actively and asked for, and I refused to compromise on. And I'm not going to say that I haven't had that psychological safety ever in education because there have been a couple of instances. But um, the s- situations where I, was considered a, a really good teacher, like from not just from myself and my, my peers, but also from the students winning awards, you know, pushing myself professionally and rising to the top of to my, my profession. And I taught French language and cultures primarily. So I taught a foreign language, oh, wow. which is yeah. not everyone's favorite subject, mm-hmm. but it was very interactive and brain-based. And, you know, the feedback that I would get from the kids on my student voice surveys is not only did they learn a lot, but they felt safe in my classroom. That permeated everything that I did, but I wasn't getting that from my leadership. And it pushed me to the point where I was in therapy for my job all the time. Like not just every once in a while, every two weeks, (laughs) you know, going in therapy for my job. And that evaporated when I left that world. Um, The software teams that I work on, uh, that I've worked on mostly have been really welcoming, but I've taken the stance that now that I know who I am, and I wasn't accepted as who I was before, I'm going to just be who I am. And I am privileged enough now to be in a position where I can say, if this is not what you can handle, I'm not going to be here.
0: Now, one of the things I wanted to talk with you about, and I know you're not you know, an expert or anything on this necessarily, but it is interesting to get your insights from maybe from both perspectives, from a neurodivergent person applying for a job and also a team looking to to diversify their talent. Do you have any, any thoughts on how, firstly, maybe a, a neurodivergent person should ap- approach interviewing, talking, asking questions to make sure that they are joining a team that does have that psychological safety?
1: Yeah, if you're comfortable, you need to advocate for yourself from the very beginning and just be open if you're comfortable and able to do so. That will quickly weed out anybody that is not willing to do this. I applied for an ed tech enterprise position in UX um, this uh, this past year, and the company wanted me to do basically a, a logic and, and college like knowledge test, like math and verbal. Yeah,
0: and I, think I remember you posted about that. All. Yeah,
1: I did. I did. I posted yeah. about this because it yeah. made me so angry as a teacher yeah. because I knew the research behind it didn't support it. But you know, I. Personally, I am one of those fantastic test takers that can test out of anything, even if I haven't really read it. Like, I'm just good at weeding out what the answers are. So it's not that I wouldn't have done well on the test, but it just doesn't support. It's a
0: principle of things. thing. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. It doesn't support (laughs) what people can actually do, especially in UX. Like, what do math skills? Like, Figma can can do math calculations. Like, I always have a a computer with me. I have a laptop. I can do
0: math. Can you quickly calculate the gutter size on a 12-column grid if it's a, yeah, right. So, yeah, that's so silly. Well, you know, it's it's interesting, like, uh, taking that before, I, I question, what would they do with that information? Are, are you looking for somebody who's good at this specific thing and and canceling out everybody who is? I mean, I feel like there's so such better ways to ask a question during an interview, one of those behavioral type, well, how would you do in a situation when, you know, and get that answer, even, you know, maybe using it after you've been hired to figure out how to use that skill set in the best possible way, I could see that being advantageous,
1: perhaps. As long as it's used correctly Mm -hmm, and not used to punish because you're going to end up forcing someone into a track Mm -hmm. where they're going to stop diversifying your thoughts and become that homogenous person to fit in. They're going to start masking. So I think that's the key. I think that recognizing in interviews when an answer is different but not in a bad way Mm -hmm. and running with that, Mm -hmm. I think that's important. I am fortunate enough to with my impulsive crazy brain, be able to interview really well for the most part, if I feel like I'm decently prepared. So I feel like taking control of that narrative, making it a more conversational interview, using those questioning skills that I have, where I want to know every detail, instead of just waiting for the answers to come to me, I drove my interviews. And I hate to say this, this is going to sound absolutely terrible, and the internet's going to lambast me for it. But I actually used my disability as a marketing point. Now, I don't want to become disability porn or inspiration porn, but like. I made a point of saying, look, my brain is different and you're going to have to adjust to certain things, but here are the rewards that you're going to get if you do adjust. You know, I don't don't think there's anything wrong with that.
0: I mean, I guess using that to your advantage to maybe get like some kind of affirmative action thing, you know, perhaps could be seen as maybe unethical, but you know, even then like it's there for a reason, but still, I think that the fact that you're promoting the benefits and you're, 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 you're weeding out those companies that wouldn't, that you wouldn't want to work for anyway. Right. I mean. If you say that mm-hmm. and then you don't get a response, chances are good you would have been miserable there
1: well and you know that's a that's a piece of privilege that I have now that I have enough cred in UX to be able to do that in the beginning it was whatever I could take and I was very very lucky to land in some places that were very very supportive including a neurodivergent hiring site so very much focused on that angle but like that's that's a place of privilege that I'm at right now not
0: everybody has that that's a, that's a great point yeah that's a really good point because I, I do tell people when I talk to junior designers is to Use the interview to interview the company. Absolutely. Right? And, it, but that is a good point. Like some people aren't privileged enough to do that. Some people do need a job. Although, what one of the things I mean, this is totally off topic, but one of the things I do tell people is don't just take any job for the money. If you need a, if you need money, you could probably wait tables and bartend and make more money you know you could go probably work in retail make more money than the junior designers a lot of places
1: exactly and that's why i worked full-time um as a a market research project director at a company that was incredibly supportive and wonderful and was actually incorporating ux research into their deep market research so while i was also working in the evenings (laughs) full-time for a ux position but so i didn't have to choose and again I was privileged enough to be able to handle
0: that. Got to have the time, right? I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of people don't have the time to do that. So that's a really good point to always <laughs> remind ourselves. We we often are working from a place of privilege without realizing it.
1: Absolutely.
0: So question for you. One of the things I'm I'm really interested in from a team that's looking to bring on diverse background thought, you mentioned, you know, race, religion, all these things, eth- ethnic background stuff being one example of diversity, but this ne- diversity of thought as, as well, the, the neurodivergence. Any any thoughts or, or suggestions, tips, tricks, I don't know, for a team looking to hire that diverse, you know, potentially neurodivergent employee?
1: I would say the first thing is to be open to different ways of doing things if it's not harmful to the team. For example, at a previous position, I had a teammate who was dyslexic that really needed to do voice notes. And not type things. And what, was that the best thing for my brain? No, but I could handle it. It wasn't harmful to my brain. So um, we switched the way that we communicated because that was what was best for her. Um, and she she just had a really hard time with print and especially large amounts of print um, and also responding articulately in print when she could respond articulately with her voice. So we would voice memo back and forth. Uh, there are a lot of places that are just too rigid to to even break that kind of barrier. So being open to changes that are not going to be harmful to the team is I think the number one thing. And I think it kind of goes with the remote work revolution about not just being able to work from home, but being able to work how you need to I work. Want, yeah, Like I can hyper focus for four hours and then forget that I need to use the restroom and eat until I'm starving. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, there's there's people and things. And then I need an hour break. And so being able to to do that, rather than saying I have to be sitting in front of a camera for eight hours, whether those are the best eight hours for me or not, Um, You know, obviously you have to work with meetings and be flexible, but, but saying here's the time window, work how is best for you, but make sure you're at your meetings and, and being open to change those communication styles is key. And I found that a lot of people who are afraid to be themselves and ask for what they need are empowered by the fact that I'm asking for what I need. When I meet somebody, I say, Hey, and heads up, I'm autistic and I'm ADHD. So if I interrupt you, I'm sorry. It's not intentional. If I ask you a lot of direct pointed questions, it is not me questioning you or hounding you. It is trying to understand what you are saying and really get all the details and get a full picture. And so that takes out 90% of the miscommunication issues that we have.
0: And that does create that safe environment where they feel like they can speak up because they've seen you speak up.
1: Exactly. If they see me being successful, even if they don't see the parts where I'm not successful (laughs) and I have a rough day, they, they still start to accommodate and feel better. And the entire organization shifts and changes.
0: And and I think what you also just noted, something that you, you may have implied, but I don't know if you meant to, creating a space as a leader of a team, supplying the tools that a diverse team would need to communicate. So I, I'm thinking specifically something like Teams, right? Um, yeah. Or e- Requiring just email or instant message. There's no way for that person to create a voice memo in any of those types of scenarios. Perhaps she could figure out a hack and record something, upload a thing, blah, blah, blah. But then you think about a tool like Slack that has that built in Mm
1: -hmm. and I
0: can just click a little microphone, record something, send boom, it's there. You know, it's, it's really interesting. And there's people who would use that, that are not neurodiverse that, uh, that would, you know, or neurodivergent that would use that in different ways. I I actually use a little microphone thing. I never really thought about it. Maybe it is because I'm ADD, but uh, you know, I record a, a long thing instead of typing out something eight paragraphs long in a, in a Slack channel, nobody's going to read that crap. Right. But you know, maybe they'll listen to the audio and it's just kind of stream of thought kind of stuff. And I found I've used it. So maybe you know, other people would use it too. It doesn't have to just be for specific types of people, but anyway, that just made me think of that, that like providing the tools for them to feel safe is not, it's not just exactly. saying it's a safe environment. It's actually actions, providing tools, doing things like that. So anyway, I just thought that was interesting.
1: No, I mean, you're absolutely right. And it, everybody has different needs, whether you're a neurodivergent or neurotypical. You have different needs. You have different preferences. You have different things that work best for you. And if you're seeing that utilized in not just one way, but like offering the whole spectrum of ways, then, then you're going to feel more comfortable at work regardless of who you are.
0: Yeah. Okay, so I want to ask you a question. From a team hiring or, or offering a role and going out and hiring, trying to find a diverse team, are there things that you think they should avoid doing that would scare away a neurodiverse talent pool?
1: Um, So I think that this whole, we're trying to trap you into showing a bad side of you or where you're inexperienced kind of thing. I mean, you talk to somebody, you know, whether they're experienced in UX, you, you know, by the way that they talk, how, how their experiences stack up and what they, what their qualifications are. But you know, the trapping, the, the, the over-ending processes that don't have any kind of like, here are what the questions like at thrive. I got, here's an outline of the interview. Here's who you're talking to. Here's their LinkedIn profile. Oh, cool! Like if you have any questions, reach out to them. I love that. Um, You know, here's an idea of what we're going to talk about. And so it was not on the spot, even though I'm a good on the spot person, it wasn't on the spot. I could think about it. I do like to prepare and make sure that I have the right tools necessary So those kinds of things that are support to everyone, like everyone deserves that. It's not a gotcha. Like if you want the best person to show up to to work and you want people to feel comfortable showing up, like actually showing up and really giving of themselves, you're going to need to to give them the best tools that you can going forward. I know I think that the as long as it's actually in practice, the statements about um, we know that you may not have all of these things, but we're looking for diversity of thought, especially if you come from an under like those things are encouraging because, you know, you may actually have those skills or you may you may have real disadvantages where it's just something easy to tune up rather than lose that person that could be so valuable and wonderful to your team. I think those are important as well.
0: You know, I just it thought of something too, like you mentioned this before, but there's a lot of people who are not diagnosed. I don't know what the proper term for that, not, not misdiagnosed, but just not diagnosed. Mm-hmm. Underdiagnosed, I think is maybe the term you use. But there's a lot of people that would be coming into these interviews that would assume they're perfectly neurotypical and have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> like someone like me, I guess, like, for instance, I, I didn't realize it until you were saying it about the ADD stuff. But, you know, that's the kind of thing where you wouldn't even realize that you were neurodivergent uh, and t- it, it, you, you just assume you're quote unquote normal, but having, you know, not setting it up to be looking for, but just uh, open to anybody. And, and I don't know. Anyway, I just kind of thought of that as kind of interesting. I don't know where I was going with that specifically, but That kind of idea, just like, you might not even realize that you're different than everybody else. And just creating a space for anybody and everybody, not, you know, targeting some specific thing. But I don't know. I just thought of that. That was kind of interesting.
1: I think it was Ellie Middleton that a couple weeks ago on on LinkedIn pointed out, you know, a few years ago, because she could shove herself into that box before she was diagnosed, even though it was painful and hard, um, she didn't think of herself as ADHD. She'd had no clue. And, you know, her whole world was was changed when that happened. So, you know, I think that you're right. People don't realize that they they are this way, especially if they've only seen the one sided version of just a tiny little portion of what what people can be. Um, also, again, going back to privilege, getting a diagnosis is a privilege. It is expensive. It takes a mm, lot of time, yeah, and fine. then you have to have people to believe you. And I'm, that's I've got a lot of privilege and cred there. I'm I'm you know there's a lot that I'm not believed about because of being a woman, but I don't have those additional barriers to being believed and getting decent health care on a regular basis, let alone on a psychiatric basis, looking at mental health and and diagnoses in that way. So I think that that's, some people are never going to get diagnosed, even if they want to, because it's just a barrier.
0: Mm. It's really interesting. That's a really great point that most people like me for, you know, white male certainly, I think takes for granted, I guess that thought that I'm pretty privileged and I could do almost anything and, and, and not have to answer for it. Right. So that's, that's just a really good, uh, call out. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about just communication styles. So, you know, you get on the team, you're there, you're hired, everything's great. I, I'm really curious about diving into this a little bit, but this, and, and it's hard maybe because <laughs> neurodivergent is not, a, like you mentioned, a homogenous thing. It, no, no two neurodivergent people are alike. So maybe it's hard to say this, but I'm curious, you know, I, Neurodivergent team members interacting with neurotypical team members. There's oftentimes this sort of office etiquette that is just supposed to be understood, and the neurodivergent folks may or may not be jive with that. I guess. Any thoughts there? Just how do how do they communicate? Is there something you recommend or not recommend or something? You know.
1: So the first one is kind of silly, but get used to the fact that emoji are professional. I use them all the time. I cannot communicate. Without yeah. emoji, like I need people to understand that m- the way that I communicate in written form is usually direct and usually lengthy because I feel the need to explain myself, to defend myself from past experiences. So throwing an emoji in there to let them know that, hey, this may be direct, but it's meant in a friendly way is important. It's a skill that I have learned. It's a coping mechanism that I have learned to help disarm people. Sure. So emojis and, and, and gifts are 1000% professional. And help communicate anything that helps communicate and get that understanding uh, across is important. I think on both sides, neurodivergent and neurotypical, going back to Stephen Covey's leader in me stuff about seek first to understand and then be understood. I think that's key. Not immediately reacting Don't expect. to what you're hearing, or even if you are reacting immediately, internalizing it for a second, taking that breath and going, what is this person trying to say to me? Is this person upset because they're upset at me, or are they upset because they feel like they're losing their power in the situation or are concerned about something and not adequately putting it forward? I think, and that's, again, on both sides. You know, seek first to understand and then be understood. I think our communication styles as a society right now are very much on the reactive and pushing forward our opinions and thoughts. And I think that... Being a multilingual, teaching a foreign language for years and years, and understanding that cult- cultural competence of interpretive communication versus interpersonal communication versus presentational communication, understanding the lenses that that entails, and and really kind of giving people grace. Again, going back to the developing the sense of psychological safety and being open to changing the way things are handled based on the needs of your team members. As long as it's not harmful to your team, it should be there. I think giving and receiving feedback at all levels is incredibly important. And the way that you give and receive feedback really changes the way that the kind of feedback that you get. You know, I have no problem at all giving feedback to the head of my company (laughs) if (laughs) I need to. And, And some of it is just my autistic, like bluntness, but you know, it's received well, it's received as coming from a place of care. I think remembering that not all of us are always great at showing the emotions we feel on the inside, on the outside of our face and conversely hiding our emotions oh, yeah, from our yeah, face. Yeah, yeah. Um, Cause again, autistic there, but um, you know, those are, those are important things. And that even neurotypical struggle with that sometimes. So just giving people grace, remembering that we're people. Remembering that we all have bad days, we all have bad times, and really trying to just give someone a beat to, to recover. You know, if I turn my camera off, there's a reason why. It, sometimes it's because I'm tired or sometimes it's because I just don't look great because I just don't feel well and there's a different standard for women and how we look, although that's not as bad in the software world. Uh, you know, and sometimes it's a, I'm upset and I know my face is going to betray <laughs> it and I know that it's not necessarily the other person's fault. It's my fault. But like, it's my, me projecting my emotions and I don't want to have that. And I think there's also the stigma of feeling feelings. I'm a highly sensitive person and I am hyper empathetic. It's part of the reason why I had a hard time getting diagnosed is because I'm not a hypo empathetic person. I'm not someone who has a, has trouble recognizing everyone's emotions. I over sympathize and empathize and I overreact to people's emotions and feel them at a deep level. So, you know, I'm going to have emotions to things. An emotion and crying is a physical response to the chemicals in your brain. You cannot fix that. That is just the way that your brain is literally functioning. Like telling someone to suck it up and stop crying is not going to help them stop crying. Their brain says that they need that physical release so that the proper hormones can be balanced in their brain again. That's what they need. So just the understanding. And again, that's on both
0: sides. yeah. well, I was just going to say, I mean, the, the the advice that you're giving here is almost like advice for anybody, regardless of, you know, uh, neurotypical or neurodivergent. I mean, these, like you've got a team full of neurotypical people. you should be just like you said, you know, seek first to mm-hmm. understand before expecting someone to understand you. Don't just straight off the bat, expect everybody to know exactly what you're talking about without first or exactly where you're coming from. Without first going and trying to understand where they're coming from and building that empathy, and as UX designers, we talk about empathy all the time. This is it in action. This is this is mm-hmm. building that empathy up exactly as you're talking about. So I, I think that advice is just wonderful advice for anybody, regardless if you're divergent or not. But I, I love that. And and again, you know that idea that the, you know neurodivergence is not monolithic. So what may apply to you or one other person might be completely different for someone who also identifies as neurodivergent.
1: And neurotypicality isn't monolithic either.
0: Yeah, even so. Yeah, right. Sure. Yeah. What, what is typical, right? I mean, who who defined <laughs> typical? So yeah, I think that's that's also a really great point. Uh, the thing that you mentioned with emoji, uh, I, this is something interesting because this is like, again, remote versus in person, right? When you lose the body language, the emotion in your voice, how you phrase a thing when you're just typing it all the time. And I think emoji in general, exclamation points, whatever, those are really great ways to. Try to re- replicate some of that body language, you know, like a crying face emoji or whatever, you know, laughing emoji. It's certainly, it, 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 to, I think you mentioned this disarms them a little bit. And it, 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 you know, asking a question might be to some people very confrontational. And so using those emoji, I think remotely, I don't know. I love that Slack even lets you add your own. I actually, kind of, this is funny because I don't know if this is me just being weird or what, but when someone says something on Slack, if it's not super important and it's just, they want, you know, I want, I want them to know that I saw that they posted it, you know, I don't need to get the last word in and have some paragraph So I just like, I'll just, uh, you know, on, on Slack, I don't know if anybody doesn't use it, but on Slack, you can add an emoji to a line just like you can in a text message or something. But I I created Mm -hmm. this animated GIF of the, the big Lebowski uh, swishing around a a white Russian. (laughs) And so that's like my emoji. I just made that on, and I added it to Slack and no one else really uses it but me. But if someone says something, I'm just like, you know, the dude abides or whatever, but, um, that's just my way of like, you knowing that I saw your message, you know? And anyway, I, I don't know, but I love that you say that. Cause I, I do that all the time. You know, I don't know with, with, would I do that with the CEO of GE. I probably not but you know, maybe he would take it. I don't know. Anyway, it's kind of interesting. I love that you mentioned that. Cause I, I think the emoji are, are, are just great for remote work in general.
1: Oh my gosh. I know everybody hates on the Mac touch bar, but like, that's my that emoji central right there. Like that's how I find my emojis really quickly and add them to my Slack messages. And, you know, I, I have custom emoji on my Slack. I think the cat head Bob one is like the most popular one in ours. And then we're, we're the jellyfish pod. So like, I'm always putting jellyfish doing different things on our, on hours,
0: but yeah, oh, that's funny. My one of my favorite uh, emoji is uh, someone added this, but it's like the troll. You know, the troll guy, the, like, the face. like the. You know what I'm talking about? Um, it's like the weird, uh, like I don't know, like probably like eight uh, chan or or uh, whatever those four chan, whatever eight chan. I mean, I'm not on it, but they're like the troll. Anyway, you know how they have like the the mm-hmm. parrot, the like dancing parrot. Someone made like a dancing troll, like the <laughs> rainbow colors. So anyone, anyway, someone says something and I'm like, you know, I'm like, ooh, mic drop, you know, troll. I don't know. Anyway, it's just funny. So communication styles, you know, I, again, I think like your advice for communicating and, and setting up these expectations is great for neurodivergent, but it's also great for just anybody. Oh, yeah. So I think this is really interesting. It's like, we're not that different. We just have different ways of be communicating. Yeah, human. Just be a good human. That's really all that matters. <laughs> And, and again, I think that empathy, you know, we, we talk about empathy for users as UX designers all the time. And I can't tell you how many times I've worked with UX designers that were just total assholes to the rest of their team. Like, you suck at this. I don't mm-hmm. understand. Like, you, you're you not getting this empathy thing, you know? It's important for everybody.
1: And you're not helping anyone be on your side. Like, your devs are going to come after you. Yeah, exactly. Who, what dev is going to put in extra work sure, when you yeah. find something when you are just an asshole to them all the time?
0: Because you berated them and something's 10 pixels off, right? Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> Um, you know, so yeah, pick your battles, but yeah, I think this is like really good advice just in general. Cool. So we talked about a lot of stuff today. I'm really excited to get your input. Anything else before we close this up that you, you want to mention that we didn't get a chance to talk
1: about? You know, you mentioned body language a lot in, um, remote work. And I think that it's, it goes both ways. It is, we are losing some body language, but then there are also, like, for me, it's a protective thing. Like, there's a lot of body language you don't see on purpose that I try to hide. Like, if, if I need to, like, hiding the way that I'm fidgeting, depending on who I'm talking to, I betray myself with my body sometimes, or or people think the wrong thing because I'm sitting the way that is most comfortable to my body because I am always aware of any discomfort. My you know ADHD, you can't ever take anything off your plate. It never goes out of your field of vision. You don't ignore something. Your brain is processing everything. So there are sensory stimuli that are bothering me that maybe like I'm sitting like this and it, you know, it looks like I'm closed off, but I could like move like this. And maybe you don't see that I'm sitting with my arms folded <laughs> and whatever. And it's not yeah. a reaction to while you're talking. It's just the most comfortable thing for me at the time. Um, and it takes away the stigma of stimming. Um, you know, everybody stems, whether we know it or not it, from tapping your toes to, I have this weird breath thing that I do when I, whenever I perceive something as hard that I kind of like, psh, <laughs> and it drives my husband insane. because yeah, yeah. I do it for everything. Like whether I'm working out or, you know, just like frustrated at my video game or whatever, or like, I, it's the way that my brain works or going through a difficult problem. So, you know, it kind of takes away some of those, stigmas with stimming. I like that.
0: Yeah. That's really important. I think there's a lot of people out there that just assume you're supposed to sit still the whole time and do it, you know, and like my, my wife, for instance, not, not to, not to bash or anything, but like I'll, when I have something that like I'm, I'm working, I can't figure it out. I talk to myself and I just like, oh, I'm just like, you know, why is this thing doing this? I don't understand. I did this thing. And my wife's like, why would you say? And I'm like, nothing. I'm talking, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to, I don't need your input. I just, I'm, I'm trying to figure this out for myself. Uh, and it drives her absolutely crazy. She's like, "Why are you? Why did you stop talking to yourself?" I'm like, "This is how I process it." But anyway, that, would you
1: like to know why?
0: Why? Yeah, why? Why is that?
1: So, um, with an ADHD brain, uh, generally, you don't have executive functioning. So when when somebody looks at a room and processes it, or looks at a desk and processes it, um, a neurotypical person will look at what's important, and the rest is immediately discarded by their brain. For us, nothing is ever discarded immediately so we're processing all the things at once and it's not necessarily in the hierarchy that that a neurotypical brain would be so you're Ah, literally forcing your brain to focus on the difficult problem that you are doing because you have multiple other things pulling on your sensory focus foci at the time so like you you're thinking about the way that your body is positioned you're thinking about anything that's aggravating you a tag um a little twinge in your foot you're looking you notice all the different colors of lights and the little movements around you and things like that and so it's you're literally just channeling your focus.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: Jeremy, right. I'm not kidding when I say that I cannot drive a car in silence. I will veer off the side of the road looking <laughs> at things. I'm not kidding. My wife
0: constantly, <laughs> look at the road, look at the road. I'm like, but did you see that sign? That was a really cool topography on that billboard or something. I yeah.
1: know. Like every, there's so many different things. Did you notice that, that that house's front door and all of these things? And I have to have the radio blaring or talking to somebody or a podcast or something, even if it's super quiet you know, because it forces me to have that background noise for my brain to take care of so that I focus on what I'm doing.
0: I love that. So this is, you, you might appreciate this, but we, we moved up from New Orleans two years ago mm-hmm. and New Orleans is, I don't know if it's known throughout the, the country or anywhere else, but it's, you know, completely corrupt. The politicians are generally mm-hmm. under investigation by somebody right now. The mayor is under investigation by the FBI for various things. Anyway, uh, you know, it, it's, it's uh, notoriously corrupt infrastructure Mm -hmm. projects take years, right? Like as an, Mm -hmm. as as an example, when we moved and this was during COVID, so it's, you got to give them a little slack, but when we moved, they had just torn up a street to repave it. And we went back maybe a year later and it was still torn up. They hadn't even, it looked like they hadn't touched it. So anyway, up in Kentucky though, things seem to just happen like so quickly, like, Oh my God, I can't believe. So they recently, and you probably have driven past this, but this turnaround, they're doing the Texas turnaround thing. Now, uh, And so they just recently, if you're familiar with Pike Street, anybody listening, it's not from here, probably has no idea. But anyway, there's this, this underpass on Pike Street. They built this turnaround thing in a month. And it's right past where we drop our kids off from school. And every morning I'm like, oh my God, they're almost done. I'm like, Amy, look at that. They're already putting the concrete up. Amy, look at that. They're putting the bears up. Amy, look at that. The thing's open, you know? And she's like, would you shut up? about <laughs> <What> the <goddamn? laughs> You know, she's like, just drive the car already. Good God. Like just, you know, I just, I, but I, it's funny. I have to do the same thing. I'm like commenting about everything. Like, oh my God, look, that's a really pretty house. Oh, look at that. Oh, look at that tree. Oh my God, look at all the birds, you know? Uh, and it drives my kids crazy, too, because like we're usually passing it up and they're like, where did I didn't see it? You know, I'm making all upset because they didn't get to see the thing I was talking about. Anyway, totally off topic there. But anyway, I thought you might appreciate that. All right. So we've got a little a little game, not a game, uh, some questions that I want to ask to get our listeners to uh, to know you a little bit better. So these are just simple questions, hopefully just off the top of your head, whatever comes to mind. You don't have to have think anything about it. You don't even have to explain it if you don't want to. But just some questions to, to, to get to know you a little bit more. First one, what is your favorite non-design book?
1: Okay, so before we start these, I'm going to let you know that favorite makes my brain itchy. Oh, okay. So right. I'm not going to give just one response for most of that's these. That's totally fair. Because my, I just, I, I can't pick. <laughs> I'm a polymath too. I, I like a lot of things deep, deeply. And, you know, my brain, that's another reason why I was diagnosed late is because I don't have one special interest. I have so many right. special interests. So anyway. Keep that in mind with my favorite. So uh, non-design book. Okay. I don't have one book.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I can't, That's
1: fair. but I, I do read a lot of nonfiction as a polymath. I tend to consume an entire book in a matter of hours. Uh-huh. And then I want to talk about it in depth with people um, <laughs> about many, many different subjects. And this disarms people. Like my husband cracks up because Somebody will be like, well, I'm a plumber. And I'm like, well, what kind of plumber are you? Are you a commercial or residential? What kind of new builds do you work on? Repairing like existing builds? Like, What do you do? And they're like, why are you asking me these questions?
0: See, that's great. UX research. That's perfect, though. That's exactly what you want a UX researcher to be doing, right?
1: Right. Um, yeah. So I do a lot of nonfiction. Um, for fiction, my my youngest son, who's nine, loves dragons. So I've been in a dragon kick lately. Um, so I've read the Temeraire series, which is like nine books long and it kind of reimagines history if there were dragons. Oh, that's cool. My kids and now there. I'm on the Bitterwood series, which I found at a con. I, I talked to the author and picked up the whole series at the con. So just kind of my kick right now.
0: That's awesome. So nonfiction, what's your favorite nonfiction book?
1: Oh, can I pick on favorite? Top Everything. I just three. consume it.
0: Or what's your, let's say, let's say your favorite nonfiction topic? For books to be about uh
1: so like understanding the brain and, and the psychology of how things work with like brene brown
0: okay yeah cool awesome all right that's good uh what's your favorite non-design podcast or let's just say genre of i have
1: one with this oh one? okay one. all right all right go ahead we can do hard things by glennon doyle yeah, abby wambach cool. and amanda doyle
0: my other podcast retro time we did a whole episode about we can do hard things that's so, awesome. and we try to do that with the kids, you know, Oh, it's hard. You could do it. You could do this. You know, it's, it's hard because you haven't done it, but yeah. 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 Anyway, that's a, awesome. I love that. Um, but your favorite meal <laughs> or, or, okay, or so, I don't know if you can, maybe I they can't, can't do pick one. one. That's fair.
1: So my husband and I are both great cooks. Um, and we rotate meals in based on like the moods or the seasons. And we've been doing a lot of HelloFresh just to get some new things yeah, that are yeah. still within my acceptable palate limit. But right now it's soup season in our house. Soup season. There you go. Um, so hilariously, my kids' favorite foods are soups and they will try any soup with anything in them. They ate a soup with kale in it and really? just ate the kale. Wow. No problem. They don't even like kale, but they <laughs> ate it because they're like, it's soup.
0: Oh, that's awesome. So, oh, I'm jealous. <laughs> you,
1: you know, potato soup, uh, cream of chicken and wild rice, tortellini, chili, chicken noodle, jambalaya, jambalaya. vegetable beef. And I have like a giant 16 quart soup pot that I oh, like nice. fill and we eat on for three days just because yeah. we all love soups that much.
0: So, if you're in a jambalaya, by the way, this is a little pro tip for anybody up <laughs> in the Midwest that has uh, uh, access to Meyer Grocery. Yes. Uh, one of my favorite, uh, I'm going to give a shout out. By the way, no sponsors. This is just me because I love them. Uh, shout out to Jambalaya Girl. Uh, that's the brand of Jambalaya Box Mix. You can get it at Meyer now in the Midwest. And it was, uh, we're actually friends with her. She lived in our old neighborhood back in New Orleans. Oh, that's cool. Um, which randomly met her, but happened. we happened to love Jambalaya Girl. We were like, oh my God, that's you. Holy crap. Anyway, um, Jumbo Eye Girl. If you're at, if you have access to Meyer, you can get a box of Jumbo Eye Girl. It's very good. They also think she has a gumbo mix. It's also very good, and I think it's nice. a million times better than Zatarans, by the way. Sorry, Zatarans, but uh, Jumbo Eye Girl. Anyway, shout out to Jumbo Eye Girl. No, no, she's not sponsoring the show, but uh, maybe if she wants to, maybe she can. I'll, I'll give her a holler. All right, what is your favorite vacation spot?
1: you know as uh, we were both teachers for so many years my husband's still a teacher so we didn't vacation a lot before now even in during the summers yeah. you know teacher teacher salaries but um one of our goals is as the kids get older um the, you know they're 12 and 9 now we'd love to start in a couple of years just living in a different city over the summer mm, like in, in like around the world yeah. in all different kinds of places you know not necessarily u.s or eurocentric but all over the place so that's kind of everywhere. I want to experience all the things.
0: So where would you, here's a question. Where would you live first? Where's the first place Um, you'd go? Probably. Assuming you could afford it or whatever.
1: My 12 year old's a little theater kid. So probably New York city first, Mm, but then obviously Paris, um, Uh, and London, but then Mm. also branching out around the world.
0: You know, it's crazy though. You think that this is expensive, but it's really like, it's probably cheaper than going to Florida.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, if you a month of Airbnb is twenty five hundred dollars. Yeah, well, maybe maybe not New York
0: City, but uh, (laughs) New York City. You know, um, we had uh, some friends who did this, and they went to Portugal, and Mm -hmm. they spent a month in Portugal, and it was like I think they spent a thousand dollars or fifteen hundred dollars for the month. It's crazy, you know. I mean, yeah, it costs a lot to get there, obviously, but you know, once you're there, I mean, that's cheaper than that's like literally ten percent of Disney trip.
1: (laughs) Well, and you can go anywhere in Europe (laughs) with the Euro Pass for really really cheap, and your kids get student. Right. so and a lot
0: i mean it's not ex- you know hotels are obviously expensive in the mm-hmm. fancy cities but i mean if you're, you're renting an apartment it's generally pretty cheap so anyway that's a good idea i love that um all right so last question what is your favorite design tool that is not figma
1: so for ux it is a soft cover Ooh, dot grid notebook with decently thick pages dot grid
0: yeah I love dot grid.
1: My favorite one, which is discontinued right now, so I'm waiting for the school year to start and they get it again, is mint green from Walmart. Or I think there's green room at Target. Sometimes they have, they dot, have them.
0: Dot. Uh, yes. They make a dot
1: grid. Oh, dot wow. grid composition notebooks. Oh my god!
0: I love that. I um. I love dot dot grid is like my favorite. I have yeah. I have the, all these little field field note knockoffs. They're not real field notes because they're cheaper. But the, I'm showing the camera. You can't see it out there in <laughs> podcast land. But I love. Uh, i love um i actually carry around i have this i got a little leather thing and i write down like random thoughts or podcast or uh, linkedin post ideas or something
1: well then you have to have your friction pen i do the navy blue friction clickables because they erase i love those i got
0: this one I, it's a zebra what is this a zebra. A pilot. yeah f701 if anyone's out there and i, I swapped out the ink for uh Fisher Space pen so it can like write upside down <laughs> in the rain and stuff. Anyway, I love this pen. It's amazing. It's like my EDC pen. I like EDC gear too. I'm a nerd about that. Love it. Well, that's it. Um, anything before we get out of here you want to plug? want um, Anything you want to tell the world about?
1: No, I think, I think we've talked about just about everything.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I, I think this topic is fascinating. I think it's really important. Diversity of thought, diversity of background, diversity of, of all this. It just makes our work just so much better we have people that challenge our ideas that are different from us, that are also giving input. And I, I just think it's, it's so important.
1: Agreed. And thank you so much for having me here.
0: Well, all right, y'all. I think that's it for us for today. I hope a man and I helped to shed a little bit of light on teams with neurotypical and neurodivergent team members. Uh, but what's your experience been working on teams with people whose brains are, are wired a little bit differently? Have you tried any of these things that we're talking about in these tips? Have you, Have you found something that works better than others? I'd love to know. Let me know what you think on LinkedIn or shoot me an email at hello at beyonduxdesign.com. I'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you heard today, don't forget to like or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you feel like you're getting something out of the show, please tell a friend. That would help me out so much. And if you know somebody who might find any of this stuff useful, why don't you share it with them? That'd be awesome. And if you want to help keep the show independent and ad-free, check out the patreon sponsor packages at beyonduxdesign.com slash support. You can support the show for as little as $3 a month. And there's some awesome perks like joining the Beyond UX Design Slack community, connect with other aspiring UX designers just like you, and you can get a shout out on the show every week. There's a package to meet with me for 30 minutes every month. That's pretty sweet. Don't forget to sign up for the newsletter and check out all the past episodes at beyonduxdesign.com. I hope you keep coming back for more great UX tips from Beyond UX Design. And until next time, remember, you're more than a designer because there is so much more to UX than design. I'll see you around. Take care, y'all. Awesome. (laughs) How do I stop this? There we go.